You're listening to the Experience Sikhi podcast, a deeper look into the Sikh identity. We present to you open, honest, and inspiring stories. No armor, pretense, or sugarcoating. Wahiguji ka khalsa, Wahiguji ki fateh. Welcome to the Experience Sikhi podcast. I'm Dilraj Singh. We begin the podcast by acknowledging that we are meeting on Aboriginal land that has been inhabited by Indigenous peoples from the beginning. As settlers, we're grateful for the opportunity to meet here, and we thank all the generations of people who have taken care of this land for thousands of years. In particular, we acknowledge the traditional territory of the Anishinaabek and the Huron-Wendat. Also, just some reminders, if you like the podcast, please remember to comment, rate, and subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Google Play. You can also send us questions and feedback at podcast at experienceikki.com. Once again, that's podcast at experienceikki.com. Our guest today is Girpakar. Girpakar is a graduate of Carleton University, where she received her undergraduate degree and her master's. Following the completion of her master's in political management, Girpa joined the Public Health Agency of Canada, supporting the COVID-19 pandemic response in a number of capacities, including policy and emergency staffing. In her spare time, Kirpa is passionate about community building and gender equality. Since 2015, she has been engaged in the World Sikh Organization of Canada, otherwise known as WSO. In 2021, she was appointed to the executive as Director of Administration for the WSO. She has also been engaged in a number of community initiatives in Ottawa and the GTA. And in September 2022, Kirpa joined Vermont Law School to begin her Juris Doctorate. So here is Kirpa Gaur. How are you today? Thank you so much for joining the show. Happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me. So we'd love to begin the show with just a little bit about yourself, something to let the listeners know who Kirpakar is. I kind of have a different background from, um, I guess, some of the other folks in our community. When I was 18, I kind of had two paths that I could kind of follow. It was either science or kind of government-related work. Um, there was a strong pull towards science just because I found it interesting. And, you know, my entire family had studied science. Even my mom, who was a public servant, you know, had studied mm-hmm. um, science for her academia. But I decided to go the other route and take a chance and move to Ottawa to study public policy. When in Ottawa, I tried to take advantage of, you know, being in Canada's capital. So during that time, I did things like working as a ministerial staffer and interned at a government relations firm and finally ended up as a public servant. Interesting. So usually this season, we've tried tapping into the pers- the professional journeys before the personal. Um, but this is a special case because you do come from a unique family that has its roots deep in the history of six in Ontario. Your mom has also been a guest on our last season. So what was it like, first of all, who is your family? And second of all, what was it like growing up in this household? Um, and how did it introduce you to Sikhi? So I'm not one to uh, name drop, but I, I guess I kind of have to. Uh, my nanaji is uh, well known as Professor Oday Singh. Uh, my mom is Ishnan Kaur. I listened to her episode on the last season. And uh, my dad is Dr. Mahesh Mahesh Singh, and he's a local dentist in Brampton. Um, so I'm glad you asked this. And if I'm honest, I'm, I think having my own identity separate from that of my family is kind of a balancing act and something that I'm still kind of navigating. 
Um, another reason why I wanted to move to Ottawa was to, you know, really just become my own person. I didn't do go to the typical school that, you know, a lot of the kids that graduate from Turner Fenton go to. And, and that's because I wanted to, you know, just really branch out and, and build, build up myself. Um, I thought, you know, if I'm there and interact with somebody from the community, they're not going to know who my family is. But uh, as I was telling you earlier, you know, within the first week, there was a connection made back to Brampton. So I really realized that I can't run for who I am. And I'm very grateful from, you know, what I've learned from my family. One of my favorite stories to explain this is uh, I was in a Gordora committee room once um, and we had, a, we had a meeting with the committee at that time. And they said, you know, this is the Raj, this is Gurdip and it Dr. Sabdi Kuriya. Like I didn't even like have my own name. And I had to be like, I had to pipe mm-hmm. up and be like, yes, my, you know, that is my father, but you know, my name is Gurdipur and I'm my own individual person. Um, I think I've, I'm still navigating this, but I think there's a space to be, you know, Dr. Sabdi Kuri, but also Kirpa Gore and be able to, you know, stand by myself. Mm-hmm. I know Ishnan auntie also mentioned the, um, the authority that your Nanaji had and what that was like for her growing up. Did mm-hmm. you experience something similar? Was there a lot of Sikhi in the household, but was there also a lot of outside exposure? For example, I remember Auntie Jean mentioning a lot of help that your Nanaji would provide newcomers to Ontario. And for that reason, it seemed like she, her life was always exposed almost to a certain point. Did you experience something similar? Yeah, it was uh, so funny. I was set up with like our family driving instructor. And I was just like, okay, you know, he's the guy who's taught my sisters how to drive. So he's going to teach me how to drive. And he was like, you know, when I came to Canada, I lived in your Nanaji's basement. And I was like, what? Like out of everyone on this planet, it's just like this, uh, this seemingly, you know, normal person. And he was like, yeah, he helped me mm-hmm. out when I came here. And so, you know, when you hear about BC, you hear about six coming in the 1900s and stuff like that. But in Ontario, it was kind of, you know, the 60s when Nanaji came here and it was teaching mm-hmm. math at Laurentian University. Um, in terms of Sikhi and, and Seva and how that kind of, you know, is was a part of my upbringing. I've been very fortunate to have Maj Brash at home and, you know, kind of having my choice of Gordora programs. Uh, we're so fortunate in the GTA to have as many Gordora Sabs as we have, as many programs as we have. We can go to the Gordora literally any day we want to, and there's always something happening there. Yeah. When I moved to Ottawa, I realized that number one, I took that for advantage because that is not the experience of six you know, outside of places with large yep. populations. Ottawa is kind of, you know, a Saturday, Sunday Gurdwara, more so a Sunday Gurdwara Saab. Mm-hmm. And then now, you know, I live in Vermont and the closest Gurdwara Saab is two hours away. And oh, wow. uh, yeah, and so I, I was honestly like a little uncomfortable with moving to a place where I didn't know like where I could find Sangat. Um, mm-hmm. So Sangat has really rooted me, I think, as a person doing seva, specifically like Langardi seva is kind of, you know, what we kind of do these days. And um, it's kind of made me who I am as a person, I think. Did you see your Sikhi changing or evolving when you stepped outside of the home to go to Ottawa for your undergraduate studies? Or was a lot of that base the same as it was in the home? I think it was base the same. 
I just think like as a student, you have a lot of different things that you need to do in terms of studying. And, you know, I also worked and went to Mm -hmm. school. So I'm a big believer in scheduling absolutely everything. So in my calendar, I have time for my nickname. In my calendar, I have time for my data side. And, you know, that's what Mm -hmm. works for me. And it helps me to ensure that I'm still, you know, doing what I need to do. Um, And I know that doesn't work for everyone, but that's just, you know, something that I've found work myself. I also think I appreciate my Sikhi more now because, Hmm. you know, initially it would be, you know, through discussions with my parents or something I would see on TV or something like that, um, that would force me to look into things. But now I, I'm finding my Sikhi in my own way. Um, and it's more Girpa led. Um, so I think that's really Mm -hmm. cool. I love the, I don't know if you meant this or not, but the play on words, Kirpalad, as in, you, <laughs> No, I did not, Kirpalad. I guess. <laughs> so You'd be funny, like, when people, when people meet me, they make all the Kirpa jokes. Like, they'll, be, yeah. they'll like, sing their favorite show with Kirpa in it. I was like, yeah, I've heard that one. <laughs> I had a bunch in my head, but I chose not to do it on purpose. <laughs> um, in terms of, now you're in law school, the mm-hmm. the time crunch is a lot more, um, a parent, right? What does that connection to Sikhi now look like uh, beyond the Nitin Marara Sahib? Do you try incorporating other things into your weekdays or weekends to maintain that connection or is school so heavy? Because I found myself to be one of those people where I began making excuses in terms of, I can do my Nitin, mm-hmm. but like, that's about it. But that was the reality of the situation. I felt like, especially in my 1L year, because the work was just so heavy. So do you try finding that balance of school just overpowering it all? No, I do think like law school in and of itself is very stressful. And um, I kind of describe it as being in a pressure cooker as well. I think what's really important for students to remember is just be kind to yourself. You know, like if you can mm-hmm. on your walk to school or your commute to school, if you're going to, you know, maybe you can listen to some kata or some kirtan or, you know, listen to a Sikhi related podcast. Um, just finding those kinds of opportunities to build it into your schedule, because sometimes we have this kind of dead time, right, where we could be doing nothing. But if you do mm-hmm. two things at once, um, you can kind of yeah. build on it. Uh, but I, I think it really comes down to being kind to yourself uh a model that I kind of live by in terms of my academics as well as my Sikhi is 1% better every day. Um, and so I think that if we just strive to be 1% better, we're only in a competition with ourselves. Um, mm-hmm. We can increase our learning, whether it be through academics or through a Sikhi lens, and that will help increase our knowledge overall. So what role does Sangath play in all of this if it's mostly an individual journey and you're mm-hmm. only competing with yourself? Um, does Sangath improve the situation does it provide any added benefits from your experience i think i learned a lot from my sangat like um working in the langar and hearing people's stories and being able to connect with folks you know across the country through wso i think has given me a new definition of sangat you know sangat isn't just the people you see at the kordoras have every week it's mm-hmm. um people you connect with uh over a variety of issues issues and you know tackling community problems um i think my sangat has always been there for me to uplift me when i need it um through the hardest times in our lives like you know when we've lost a grandparent or anything like that um and people will just show up with cooked food and help take care of you and help take care of your house and i think having that and knowing that i have that support um irrespective of what i do i think is really important for all of us yeah 
out of that Sangat, is there anyone you consider a role model along this path? And what's one of the biggest lessons that they've been able to to share with you? Mm. Uh, there are some very specific uh, females in the Lunger. Um, they're actually my mom's best friends. Uh, <laughs> one of them is my Suki auntie, and one of uh, them is Mrs. G. They both just approach every single situation that they've ever been uh, that they've ever been dealt with, which is like so much calm and so much peace. Mm-hmm. And and you look at the situation that they're dealing with, and you're like, wow, like you should be so upset, you should be like so angry at the world. But they just they have this faith in Guru Saab and they have their faith that everything will work out. And I think it's just like such mm-hmm. an example. Um, yeah. So I really look up to them and, and the way that they lead their lives. Awesome. So we've touched upon your journey into Sikhi and now turning towards your journey to becoming a public servant and now a law student. Where did mm-hmm. you study and where have you worked over the years? So I started with my undergraduate degree in public policy at Carleton University um, they're very well known for, you know, type of government work just because of their location. Um, mm-hmm. During my undergrad, I worked as a ministerial staffer on Parliament Hill. Um, and then following a change in government, uh, I started as a kind of a comm student with the federal government. I got into the government uh, through a program called FSWEP, the Federal Work Student Educational Program. So if you're in university mm-hmm. right now, uh, check it out. It's a really great opportunity to kind of get your foot in the door. And then after that, um, I did my master's in political management again at Carleton. And this kind of culminates with a 10 week internship. And I um, I acknowledged that all of my experience was kind of in the public sector. So I kind of wanted to try the private sector. So at this time, I did an internship at a government relations firm in Ottawa. So that was super mm-hmm. cool. Uh, ultimately, I ended up at the public health agency after I graduated my master's and kind of was there until I started law school. Was that intentional going into public health? Because I know you mentioned that possible interest in science. Um, mm-hmm. Or was that by luck of the draw, there was an opening and you applied? It's by luck of draw. So when I worked as a comm student, um, I was employed by Health Canada, but I was serving fact clients. So during that time, mm-hmm. I was able to network. Um, so when I finished my master's, uh, an old manager reached out to me and said, hey, are you looking for a job? Um so it was a really great opportunity, and that's kind of how I ended up at Fax. It was a little bit of luck, I would say. <laughs> awesome. So some listeners may not know this, but there is a big difference working as a political staffer and then working as part of the bureaucratic system. So working mm-hmm. with a politician as part of their daily staff, con- constituency staff, versus working with an agency such as the Public Health Agency of Canada. So what's the difference between working those two roles? I think both roles have an overall goal to help Canadians. I think that that there is just like kind of like an overarching lens that's on top of it. One has, you know, the political lens on top of it. So you want to achieve, you know, your political um, kind of promises that you've made in previous elections and stuff like that. And it's very responsive Mm -hmm. versus the public service is more um, stable and able to help the politicians achieve their goals. Outside of, you know, that kind of political side, public servants are there to provide politicians advice and direction and and kind of like what is actually possible in terms of what they're promising Canadians. Um, I think 
public servants do a lot of really great work as well as ministerial staffers i think again their goal is the same to help canadians and better canadian the you know the lives that we live and, and the way that we interact with government um i would say that the political space likely moves faster um just because of you know the things that they need to get done in a certain time frame um but at the same time there's a really big difference in terms of job security with the one or the other on the political side if your boss loses you are laid off immediately versus in the public service you know you are very fortunate to have really great job security you mentioned that your second role came after a change in government did you find (laughs) that finding that second job was difficult because there was a change in government and you were first affiliated with what was now the opposition no, not at all. Um, I find the public service not to, um, I guess, hold that against you. My boss mm-hmm. um, was is a different uh, political leaning than I am, and she never once um, held that against me. Were there any specific requirements that you know of for those jobs in the bureaucratic side of things, aside from having your undergraduate degree? I would say, of course, it, it depends on the role. Um, but I think showing really strong initiative, being a good, really good writer, um, and being flexible, I think is really important when working in the government space. We rely a lot on, um, I guess, what ministers want or what senior management in the government wants. And sometimes that can change. So being able to kind of flip and start on something new and change directions, I think is, is really important in this role. I don't know if you know this, but there tends to be, I don't know if it's a rumor, but if you succeed in public health um, at the federal level, there's a lot of opportunity to move up in your career very fast. I've had Mm -hmm. some mentors who have worked within the agency as well, and it's because of the complexity of the situation. Um, Public Mm -hmm. health is not an easy portfolio to handle. So after working and succeeding in that role, what prompted you to then apply to law school and then specifically law schools in the States? For sure. I think public health is a really niche. Um, people think of it as being really niche, but I think it's important to understand that mm-hmm. public health is almost everything. Public health is the type yeah. of food that we eat. Public health is um, preventing cancer. Public health is um, physical activity. Public health is also, you know, these vector borne diseases and, stuff like that so the the range in topics i think is really cool in public health and i also think that we as a result of the pandemic are you know have more of a focus on public health and want to understand more of it we are also dealing you know with the opioid crisis at this time and the response to that has been more of a public health um response to it which i think is super cool in terms of fact and you know deciding to go to law school the pandemic i think for me really put into perspective that um, life is short and you kind of just have to go for things. So law school was something that was always on my mind and something that, you know, I had wanted to pursue, but I thought, you know, I got my master's, I'm good. Um, but my family really supported me mm-hmm. and said, you know, get but you don't want to have regrets. You want to just, you know, try this. So I remember I was working like 12 hour days trying to study for the LSAT and, and trying to get all of that done. Um, but you know, everyone was so supportive, um, and helped me out. Um, the reason, through my work, though, when we were working on regulations, we were always working hand in hand with lawyers. They were always giving us mm-hmm. their opinions on, you know, the legislation that we are drafting and stuff like that. So I thought mm-hmm. that kind of intersection of policy as well as like legal 
uh, within the government of Canada. I thought that was a really cool intersection yep. and something that I wanted to try. Yeah, so that's kind of what opened me up to what legal roles would be within the government of Canada. Do you ever think to yourself that you're sick of school and that you've been in school for an undergrad, master's, mm -hmm. and now the Juris Doctor? Um, and now you're also a semester and a half into your Juris Doctor. Do you ever think back um, that it may not have been the right decision? I, you know what? I've never felt that way. I think it's really because I had two and a half years off um, and I was like working and um, my job was not easy by any means. Um, yeah. So I, I often tell everyone, I was like, yeah, it's like, you know, my, my, it's, it's better than my job. So, <laughs> um, but I That's think fair. I'm just really grateful for the opportunity to ha like, you know, kind of cross this off my bucket list. I sometimes like have to pinch myself and be like, wow, like I'm actually in law school. Like that's so cool. I'm going to backtrack just a little bit. We skimmed over your role with public health working mm -hmm. in the pandemic. What did you do? Um, what was your job description and how did you handle the emergency situation? For sure. So I, um, I had a number of roles within the pandemic and I was kind of plugging holes um, wherever I could help out. So, you know, I started off helping with um, emergency orders and, and kind of like those kind of like mini laws that we had that would expire yep. for 30 or 60 or 90 days. Um, and then I, you know, switched roles and I thought I was going to be working on, you know, mental health communications for staff and occupational health and safety. I was really excited because I thought that was super cool. And within a week, we had to hire a bunch of people to work at airports and borders. So I mm -hmm. moved into, into emergency staffing and staffing is something that I have no background in, but sometimes you just kind of have to pick things up on the fly and we're all working remotely. So, you know, that's like an added layer to, you know, kind of figure yeah. things out. So I did a little bit of that and then finally um, ended up as a policy analyst working on ministerial transition. So what this means is that whenever there's a federal election, public servants have to prepare for you know, whichever the next government will be. So we're keeping track of platform commitments and seeing kind of, you know, how that fits in within our roles and our agencies. And then once the mm -hmm. election is called, um, we have to prepare to brief the new minister of health or now we have an associate minister as well, which is super cool, um, and ensure that they are up to date on the file. So that entire process is, you know, across the agency. Another yep. really cool project that I got to work on was the National Adaptation Strategy, which is um, a government-wide strategy for climate change. And so public mm -hmm. health, going back to, you know, it, it involves everything, it, it's also involved with climate change. You know, you think about the extreme heat that we're kind of seeing and, and how that mm -hmm. impacts elderly folks or people who are unhoused or the um, ticks ticks or something that could never yep. you know survive in Canada but now that we have a warmer climate they're able to survive and you know Canadians are now more susceptible oh. to Lyme disease so you know um mm -hmm. on that file was super cool because I never thought there was an intersection between climate change and public health so you get to really um oh. see files from a different perspective and get your hands into a really a variety of things where you get to learn new stuff every single day you mentioned taking on a lot of novel responsibilities when the pandemic hit and you're working virtually. Was there any mentorship available or people you could go to to help you navigate these new paths? This is tough because I think we were all kind of figuring it out on the fly. But I think throughout yeah. the entirety of it, everyone was very respectful. Everyone was like, hey, you've been working for seven days straight. You need to take a day off because we, we, we worked Monday to Sunday. And... Um, mm -hmm. 
And so we kind of just really rallied around each other as a community and um, supported one another, which I really appreciated. Going back to law, Mm -hmm. being at a U.S. school, you mentioned during our previous conversation that you're essentially getting a law degree in both the States and Canada. What are some of the benefits of doing so? And do you see yourself legitimately practicing in both jurisdictions? So I want to tie this a little bit into um, like failure and new direction and stuff like that. So, you know, I did apply in Canada and I was waitlisted. And so it's kind of like, oh, what do I do now? Like, do I just keep mm-hmm. applying? Do I try something different? Um, and so I thought about why don't I apply to the U.S.? And the reason I applied to the U.S. was through my work at FAG. I saw really how connected the two countries are. Um, we have, you know, cross-border students. So people who live in one country who go to like school every single day in another country. We have people who have custody agreements with kids on one side and parents on the other side of the border. So I thought that... Like, it just showed how really intertwined our countries are. And I thought it would be a good opportunity to stay close to my family and stay in the same time zone as my parents, because that was something that was also very important to me. Um, Mm -hmm. So when it comes to getting a law degree in both U.S. and Canada, I'm at Vermont Law and Graduate School, which is really well known for, you know, their environmental law and their restorative justice program. Um, I thought, you know, it's close to the Canadian border. So, you know, their values and and, and things like that will be similar to that of Canada. And if I need to drive home for a weekend, I can do that, which I thought was Mm -hmm. a really great opportunity for me. I do plan to have a law degree in both countries because I think that will open up a lot of doors for me, just considering how Mm -hmm. interconnected our economies and the political space is. Um, And so that's kind of how I ended up in Vermont. How does that work when you're actually in school? So you're at an American law school at Mm -hmm. Osgoode. It's, for the most part, just Canadian law. There might be a few international law courses. There might be um, a specialization course in U.S. law, Mm -hmm. but not necessarily a curriculum that gets you accredited in both. So Mm -hmm. is the curriculum at Vermont something that accommodates Canadian and American law? Or is that something you will be doing after graduation in terms of getting your license for uh, practice in Ontario? It'll be something that I do after my graduation. Yeah, I'm okay. um, I'm making an effort to always work in Canada during my summers to have me exposed okay. to the Canadian legal system. Um, mm-hmm. My school does have an, uh, a program with McGill where you can go to take some like courses at their law school, which I think is super cool mm-hmm. and something that I'm, I'm looking into. But yeah, it'll be likely something that I do after I graduate. Awesome. You mentioned that Vermont's close to Canada, but it is, mm-hmm. at the end of the day, another country. So yes. what are some of the challenges <laughs> that the move to the States has presented so far? And mm-hmm. is there anything that you're grateful for, something that you've learned in the short time that you've spent away from family uh, in the States? So I feel like I need to explain where Vermont is, because I I know nothing about U.S. geography, even though I live there now. Um, so for those of you guys that are listening, Vermont is underneath Montreal. Um, it's well known for Ben & Jerry's ice cream, as well as Bernie Sanders. Um, it is also the whitest state in the all of the U.S. Um, the population is only 600,000 people. Um, we probably have 600,000 wow. people in Brampton. Um, so it, it's a different way of life. Um it's like they, they say that they have mountains. I, I think they're hills 
Um, they were not very happy when I called them hills because <laughs> I'm used to, you know, BC mountains. Um, but yeah. their kind of line is the Green Mountain State. I'm like, these aren't mountains. You guys don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> nice. But um, I forget the question. What was the question? Oh, the how, challenges. what have I learned? Yes, yeah. from my family. Um, so having, I moved out when I was 18 and then you know, stayed away for kind of seven years, just coming back and forth, seeing my family on weekends or for, you know, time in between semesters. But during the pandemic, I got the opportunity to like live with my family again as an adult. And that was such a great opportunity just to have that time with my folks. Um, And I think we all really bonded with our families during the pandemic. And, you know, my sister who lives downtown, she was home and, um, and so I really missed them because I'm, I'm just so like entrenched in their lives. Um, so, you know, when I left, I was very emotional because I didn't want to be far from them. But they kept saying to me, Gerpa, you know, it's three years. It's going to go by so fast. And, you yep. know, this is something that you've always dreamed of. So, of course, it, it's really tough to be away from them. But knowing that I can, you know, get here within eight hours, I think it, it's it, it's really helpful. Yeah, and I've done the, the drive uh, a couple of times. So... I'm getting more comfortable with it. When it comes to living in Vermont, you know, just the fact that it is the whitest state in the U.S., um, often when I go out, I'm the only person of color in in, in a specific room. And so being Mm -hmm. from the GTA and, you know, growing up in a more diverse diverse population, it's kind of um, shocking, I think, initially when you're used to it. I think also the added complexity of living in the U.S. um, and everything that we hear about the U.S. in terms of, you know, um, mass shootings and stuff like that, that's an added layer to where I have to really come to terms and ensure that I feel safe um, in mm-hmm. in specific areas and when I go out and stuff like that. But that being said, you know, I've built a great group of friends um, that always have my back and, you know, they really helped me to adjust to living in the U.S. Does the classroom also look like the state or is this enough or is there enough diversity within the class of I believe it would be 2025 at Vermont's mm-hmm. law school for you to feel a bit more comfortable on campus rather than off campus? For sure. I think like um, they've made a, you know, really big effort to ensure that the student population is diverse and, you know, they're working on it with the faculty. But in the U.S., there was actually a Supreme Court case with Harvard um, where they are trying to get rid of race-based data being included with university admissions so that's going to add you know a really big change to it because universities are going to have to adjust to ensure that the you know the student makeup is as diverse as possible right so i think all academic institutions are kind of keeping an eye on that and kind of seeing you know where that ends up that being said um i think again i take things for granted you know growing up in the gta i didn't realize you know how good i had it Um, and how my experience growing up is not the norm um, across, you know, even the country or, you know, just something eight hours away from me. Does that mean that you're leaning towards practicing in Ontario that you're most likely going to come back and practice in in Canada? Yeah, I don't um, see myself living in the U.S. long term unless it was a really great opportunity. I think being Mm -hmm. in Canada... Um, having, you know, certain benefits like um, public health care and, you know, stuff like that, I think um, really draws me back home as well as, you know, just being close to my family. I think it is a really big thing for me as well. Awesome. 
Um, you've already touched on this a little bit in terms of having a nonlinear path to law school. Um, I don't like the term, but mature students. I, I'd like to call them seasoned students because you have work experience. <laughs> a lot of the ones in law school usually come from, a lot of them are paralegals, for example, that now mm-hmm. want to take the next yeah. step and, and get the full certification. But you made the move after working years in government. So what has this journey taught you so far? It's nonlinear. You're proud of it. And you've, you must have learned a lot along the way. There are lots of listeners that message after listening to some of these episodes and with a sense of comfort that someone didn't necessarily have their career path figured out in their head at the age of five and executed it to mm-hmm. perfection. So any lessons, anything you want to impart with our listeners that may be going through similar nonlinear paths to success? For sure. I think I was really worried about being older than the other students because I'm 27, just turned 28. And I was like, oh my God, I'm going to be in school with like these 22 year olds. Like I'm so much older than they am. They're going to think I'm a grandma. And then, you know, I got to law school and, you know, there's people in their mid to late thirties. There's people with families and four kids and, and stuff like that. And so that, that was like, why did I even, why was I even worried about that um, in the first place? Mm -hmm. So I think the right time for you is is not that of somebody else. And I think you kind of just have to take a chance on yourself and go for it. Um, That being said, I think I benefited so much from having worked for three years in comparison to not going right after my master's. I think that has made me a stronger student and a stronger writer, which are, you know, really important skills that they like, they literally have classes for legal writing in law school. Mm -hmm. And so my ability to get through those classes versus somebody that, you know, only has an academic background is completely different. So I see the advantages of, you know, taking some time to work. And so I think, um, you know, it, it is a financial decision to go back to school and to, you know, take that time for yourself. But, you know, if it's something that you've been thinking about it, don't be scared, just go off and do it. Um, even if it's, you know, one course at a time, you'll slowly chip away at it and you'll gain more skills and more life experience than I think, um, you would have had otherwise. Now switching from your professional career to your involvement with the community. Mm -hmm. I think the first time I was, I feel like everyone knows who you are. Um, even though they may not know you personally. And I feel like I was yeah. one of those people where I'm like, I know the name Kid Pagadewa, but this is the first time we're sitting and having a conversation together. Yeah. But it was because of WSO. You're in almost all of their social media posts. You're at every single one of their events. <laughs> so you spent a lot of time with WSO. Um, yeah. Tell us about your community work with them. And then we'll get a little bit into what, what advocacy you've done and what it means for you. For sure. So I got involved with WSO, also known as the World Sick Organization of Canada in 2015. Um, They have something called the Sick Youth Leadership Institute, um, which is a youth internship. So in its first year, I went and got involved with the organization after that. They kind of took a chance on me and and brought me on the board. Um, And so I was doing a lot of the work in Ottawa when I lived there um, with some other folks. And um, planning things like the parliamentary dinner, um, which is b- where I believe we met, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. Yeah. I think so. <laughs> um, so things like the parliamentary dinner are now, you know, Silly has moved to Ottawa and it happens there every year. So um, mm-hmm. I've really gotten to see the organization kind of shift 
um, in the last couple of years to, you know, being a board that is majority under the age of 40, majority board in Canada, and kind of, you know, see that kind of evolution of it um, and kind of building on that strong base. The WSO was formed in 1984 to ensure that Sikhs had a common voice across the country and kind of had a national advocacy organization for it. So through my work with the organization, you know, I've been on the board for eight years. Wow, that's a long time. Um, and, you know, kind of seen the organization go through, you know, a number of things, you know, tracking Afghan Sikhs, tracking um, political interference in Canada, tracking, mm-hmm. you know, just like small things that happen, you know, at our schools and stuff like that in, in terms of um, students being able to wear their cigars. But um, yep. throughout all of the work, it's really just ensuring that Sikhs do not have barriers in their everyday life when they go to work or go to school um, and ensuring that, you know, the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms is truly upheld um, in Canada. Had you not done work with WSO, um, is there a possibility that you wouldn't be exploring the field of law at this point in time? I think that's a very real that that is that is very possible. Um, I think I'm really inspired by. You would hate that I would say this, but I, I'm really inspired by Balpreet Singh and and you know what he does for the community. He's um, yeah. he gets multiple phone calls a day um, that nobody even knows about, and his ability to get things done and fight fearlessly for the community I think is so inspiring. Um, so currently, you know, we're in the courts fighting Bill 21. If you're not aware, Bill 21. Mm-hmm limits um, people who wear religious articles of faith to have, you know, public sector jobs like police officers, teachers, public servants, judges. And that is a huge problem for our community because if, you know, they're telling us that you can't wear the you can't wear gara, you can't wear, and that is the opposite of what we need to do as six. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, it's currently at the Quebec Court of Appeals and um, we're thinking that it will go to the Supreme Court of Canada. So, you know, seeing these big fights happening in the in the legal system, I think, really inspired me as well because I I just think the work that Paul Persing does is so inspiring and I want to help him if I can. <laughs> With all of that in mind and being able to see some of the work that WSO and by Bob Persing have been able to do, what does advocacy mean to you personally? Why is it important? What is it? And why do you want to now further it Um, with your law degree advocacy means to me ensuring that you know our community always has a voice at the tables that it needs to have Um, so whether this be government whether this be you know ngos whether this be just anything at, at workplaces and knowing that six have you know lawyers that can help them ensure that they are accommodated at their workplace and and stuff like that um could you repeat the question what does advocacy mean to you personally? Advocacy means to me ensuring that everyone has a voice and that nobody is held back because of their Zikki, because I think that's really important. And I think um, similar to myself, when you know, when I left Brampton, um, we become comfortable in the status quo. And sometimes we don't question the way things are done just because they've always been done that way. But I think better is always possible. You know, that kind of that kind of saying that I have the 1% better every day. Um, we're able to, to make small steps to create um, monumental change. Um, and mm-hmm. so that is what I like to do with my advocacy is just take a big problem, break it down into chunks. And how do we get to solving this huge problem? 
Do you have an example of what being comfortable in the status quo might be? Because there might be some listeners that are in fact comfortable, but they can't identify it. Mm-hmm, for sure. I think um, I think all of us or, you know, the community got. So after 9-11, I think everyone understood the need to have more security um, at airports, on flights, stuff like that. So many Sikhs would, you know, check their good bonds in their in their luggage and they would wear, you know, a Choti good bond. Um, and so we saw that and we understood we understood why that needed to happen. I, I think it was something that was still uncomfortable for, for a lot of the community yeah. and, and not something that was everyone's favorite thing. But then they allowed things, they started to allow things like scissors or things like... Um, switchblades and stuff like that so we saw the opening Mm -hmm. up of the policy and we thought you know this is a good time for us to talk to the government and ensure that six can wear a small grip on when they fly and so it's Mm -hmm. through we had become you know used to you know airport screening and we'd become used to checking our bonds right but Mm -hmm. when we saw the loosening of, of this type of legislation and things that are you know similar in terms of in yep. terms of Rakhapan, we saw that as an opportunity to work with the government and ensure that six are allowed to work bonds that are now six centimeters within Canada on their flights. So if you um, if you go to any you know Sikhi store, you can find these like choti bonds that you can wear on your yep. flight, and that just ensures that you don't have to. You may have to check a larger bond, but you're still able to wear your gagar on your flight. That's a great example. I remember. Because I took Amrit in 2019 and flew mm-hmm. for the first time after that in 2020. And I remember, I don't know how many people I told this to, but I was so grateful that I didn't have to remove my kakad from the day I took Amrit because of that legislation until yeah. I had to fly back from India to Canada, which was yeah. this past year. But the fact that I didn't have to take it off once... Um, for almost three, four years because of that legislation and I could go on flights as much as I wanted to. Um, yeah. That was a huge deal. Um, okay, I'm yeah, I'm just super glad you, you shared that answer. I think that's, that's a great way to explain what you mean by getting comfortable with the status quo. But do you also see any advocacy points or gaps in the community that currently exist that you're hoping to address in the, in the near future? I, I think that um, international students is a really big opportunity for growth within our community. I think um, these poor kids are exploited on every single level. They're exploited by, you know, immigration agents. They're exploited by colleges. And then they're exploited by up-and-down business owners. And it honestly, Mm -hmm. it breaks my heart because we all have our parents' story, our grandparents' story of when they came to Canada and how tough it was. And now we are the same people making it tough for, um, for these students. So one thing I think that, you know, we're kind of thinking about in the international student space is how can we have the most impact? Um, There are these private colleges that exist, um, that are legally allowed to exist, but they produce degrees that are um, unusable, quite frankly. And within the immigration system, you know, international students need to have a certain title um, on their paperwork to ensure that they get their PR. So with the experience that they're getting through their education, that they are paying, you know, three times as much as an Ontario student would be paying, um, the, their job prospects and their ability to get to these positions is severely limited. 
And so Mm -hmm. that kind of advocacy work surrounding, you know, the educational institutions, ensuring that, you know, if students are paying three times as much, they should be getting three times as many services. Um, Mm -hmm. And so ensuring that that kind of that is being pushed at all government tables, I think, is really important. Another thing that we're always keeping an eye on is uh, interference from from the Indian government um, within yeah. Canadian affairs. We're currently, you know, having discussions about China, but I think India is is right there uh, with election interference and with interference uh, and stuff like that. We've uncovered some stuff just through, you know, freedom of information, where you know the Indian government didn't want teachers in Peel talking about the farmers protest. It, I I think that's that is uh, unacceptable in my opinion, uh, because it, it was a social yeah. movement that was very important to students. And if students want to talk about that social movement in the classroom, then they should be able to. Um, mm-hmm. That's something we're always keeping an eye on, as well as Afghan 6. Uh, the Afghan 6 has been a long project that the WSO has been working on for many, many years. Um, it mm-hmm. began with Manmeet Singh Pindler, um and his kind of work when he was in opposition out in Alberta. And so the Afghan 6... I think have been through so much um, just having to survive just because of their Sikhi. I think, uh, I think it, it's so heartbreaking. They live in a Gordara Saab, the Gordara Saab gets attacked and they still have to live yep. in the space where they are attacked for who they are, you know, and a number of the community has made it to India, but uh, we are working with the Canadian government to ensure that there are pathways for them to come to Canada so that they're able to practice mm-hmm. their Sikhi in a way that they are not limited in any way and that their children have the ability yeah. to, number one, go to school because sick children in Afghanistan currently do not go to school. Um, mm-hmm. And they have the ability to kind of just, you know, live freely as six. Wow. That, that's a lot on not only WSO's plate, but your plate, but it's still yeah. nice to see that there is this forward thinking because I, I feel like sometimes we get caught in, I'm not personally from Peel, but we start thinking of ourselves in a little bubble as in Brampton right. and Brampton 6, and that's all it is. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, the, the bunt in as a whole has, has so many issues that we have to address. So I'm glad that there is some initiative currently going on. We haven't discussed this specifically in any of our conversations, but has being a woman of color ever caused any adversity caused any setbacks during your time working in ottawa um in vermont now or even as an advocate with the wso because there can be some of those individuals uncles and aunties that you know may not give you the attention or respect that you deserve have any of those occurrences happened so we're actually recording this on international women's day so i I love that you asked this question um I honestly, I've been very fortunate to be surrounded by very strong women, including my mother and including her friends. And they've always just uplifted me um, in every single Mm -hmm. aspect of my life. They, you know, my mom had a conversation with me before I joined government and she said, you know, you need to ensure that if somebody speaks to you the wrong way, you have a conversation with them. Um, And this is just her own experience of being, you know, a brown, the Sodwing woman within the Ontario Public Service. I fortunately have not um, been outwardly um, faced with uh, racism or being held back as being, mm-hmm. you know, a sick woman. So I've been very fortunate. There has been microaggressions, and I think we can, you know, all agree to that. There was a comment uh, once made about 
um, my family giving uh, my future husband's family a, like a cow or something. And I was just like, uh, like, I don't, that doesn't really happen. Okay. Um, <laughs> and, and so sometimes, hmm. you know, you, you kind of have to pick your battles and in terms of you're just like, okay, like that was yep. a stupid comment. Like it, it was an uneducated comment and you kind of just brush it off or you can take that kind of opportunity to educate. And I was kind of like, Oh, like we don't really do that. Like we don't believe in, you know, dowries or anything like that. Um, mm-hmm. And so it really forces that other person to think about that comment and think about the next time they they will make that comment. I think um, yeah. the funniest thing I can kind of relate to, and I'm not sure if mom talked about this on her episode, is like my ability to speak French. Like people are shocked that I, yeah. as a brown woman, can speak French. Um, hmm. And you need to, you know, having being a federal yep. public servant. But it's just that kind of like unconscious bias that they have when they see me and they see my name. They're like, oh, we don't think that she can speak French. But they like hear that, you know, yep. I've passed my testing and, and all that good stuff. So definitely microaggressions. But I think, um, you know, having these like strong role models to um, uplift me and ensure that, you know, I'm approaching situations right, ensuring that I'm picking my battles mm-hmm. while still educating people, um, I think is kind of the way that I've approached it. That's awesome. As someone who's offered help to so many as a public servant during the pandemic, then as someone who's involved in the community through WSO and now also hoping to use their law degree for similar missions, do you ever burn out? Um, If you do, how do you recover from it? And if you don't, how do you prevent it? I'm really glad that you guys are talking about this. I think... um when I was in my undergrad, I had this thing where I was like, yeah, but you never say no. You say yes to everything that comes your way because it's a really great opportunity and you should capitalize on it. And this mm-hmm. eventually led to, you know, severe burnout. I was super exhausted. I couldn't hold my head up. I, um, and it took me, you know, a couple months to recover from that. And mm-hmm. after that happened, I said, never again. <laughs> I never want to go through that again. And I want to ensure that, you know, the young people that talk to me about, you know, community work or, you know, working in government, that I make this very clear to them that, you know, it's not worth your health. Um So the way that I prevent burnout now is, you know, going back to that scheduling in my calendar. I put in time in my calendar for things that I like to do. So I like to do crafts. I like to, I'm currently teaching myself how to crochet, like these type of things Mm -hmm. that number one, get me away from screens because I think that's really important. And as well as like feed my, my soul is in a way. I've also learned how to say no. Um, I think this is something that's very hard for sick women um especially just because we are expected to you know balance all the things and be superwoman all the time um but mm-hmm. being able to put up boundaries and say hey no actually i'm not available right now but you know here's somebody else that might be able to help you with this um yeah. i think that has really helped me in terms of you know ensuring that i'm able to feed my soul as well as still help the community in any which way i can i you know when I did get accepted to law school, I told WSO, I was like, hey, like my role is going to kind of change. And they said, that, you know, that's totally fine. You tell us what you, like, mm-hmm. you need to do. And so during the month of December, I completely disappeared. I focused on my exams. And, um, yeah. and, and they were very supportive of that. So I'm very grateful to have that as well. Awesome. If you could speak with, this has been one, one of my favorite questions so far mm-hmm. this season. But if you were able to speak with first year undergrad Kitpa, is there any advice or lesson you'd give her knowing everything you know now? For sure. I think when you're 18 or 19, you think you know absolutely everything about the world. 
but experience tells me that that is not true at all. Um, I think your 20s is a really great growth opportunity. So, you know, naturally I'm very risk adverse. Like I don't even do things like jaywalking because I don't like that. I'm a crosswalk type of girl. And it stems ultimately from a fear of the unknown, like like sticking to the rules. If I follow the rules, then everything will be okay. Um, But what I would tell 18-year-old Gerpa is that sometimes you have to deviate away from the beaten path. And sometimes you have to bet on yourself because if you don't do that, nobody else will. And you don't want to look back and have these kind of regrets. Oh, I could have done that. Or, oh, I could have done this. So you really just Mm -hmm. have to um, really bet on yourself and kind of go for things. Yeah. From a blast to the past to the future, where do you see yourself in a few years? Well, hope to graduate law school. Hope to be licensed in both Canada and the U.S. Um, I hope to be in um, a legal career that feeds my soul and gives me a sense of purpose. I think I thought I knew what that was before law school, but now I see that's kind of changing um, through my courses, which I think is super cool. I think if you're in your academics and just keep an open mind and, you know, see what type of courses really speak to you. Um, yeah, that's kind of where I see myself. I mean, I'm excited for the future. I think I have a new sense of purpose. Um, so I'm really looking forward to where life takes me. Awesome. So we're reaching the end of our episode today and we like to end every podcast with what we call the random five. This is where I'll mm-hmm. ask you five totally random questions just for the listeners to get to know you better. So the first question is, what is your favorite book? So I'm a big fan of Dare to Lead by uh, Bronte Brown. That's a really great book um, if you're looking into uh, kind of leadership hacking. But I also wanted to share my favorite childhood book because I feel like that would tell you a lot about me. Um, Percy Jackson. If you ever read those books with like the Greek mythology, those were so good. Yeah. I never watched or I never read them, but I watched the movies, which were very nice. Um, (laughs) What is your favorite quote and or Barney Punkty? So I think um, it's important to say that, you know, when I applied to law school, like I started with Nardos and I hope I'm now when I started starting for my LSAT, you know, the day of my LSAT, mm-hmm. I did um, the same thing. The day I left for Vermont, I did the same thing. And um, so just kind of those hookup namas like really, um, really, really stick with me and kind of guide me through, mm-hmm. I think, my, um, my kind of journey. Um, yeah. But one of my personal faves I think is is kind of a tie between Slokma and Noma because I think that's got me through some really tough times in my life and then there's another mm-hmm. Shabad Magyambango Gichternarahai um, which I listen to very often um, which helps me also get through you know tough and stressful times I just realized what a big difference it could be having Maharaj Prakash at home like having mm-hmm. that accessibility wow yeah wow. Um, yeah what is one of your weird quirks? I get really into things and make myself an expert, a self-proclaimed expert. I think that's an important uh, caveat to that. And then I will just like move on and forget that thing even existed. Like during the pandemic, I got really into skincare. It was like, I was calling myself like a skincare expert, like within my family circles, of course. Nice. Um, and then, you know, I moved on to gardening and, you know, just all the all the things that we were doing in the pandemic. I also like to do things um, that my grandparents did. 
um, in their lives because I feel like it cool. connects me to them. Um, so my yeah. nanima, she would um, knit and crochet. So I'm trying to teach myself mm-hmm. how to crochet. My grandfather was uh, a farmer, you know, so I started a kitchen garden. Um, so yeah, that's kind nice. of how I connect with them and, and keep their memory alive. Yeah. Well, that's cool. If you could meet anyone in history, who would it be? So I'm actually named after my mom's eldest brother. His name was Kirpal Singh, and he passed away in a car accident when my mom was 17. And so when they took the Hukam Nama mm-hmm. and they got uh, a kakka for me, um, they named me after him as Kirpa, like uh, similar to him, um, but still my own my own self. So I, I would love to meet mm-hmm. uh, my Bali Mamaji because I think that would be really cool. And what is your biggest pet peeve? I would probably say being late and it causes me a lot of problems <laughs> within my community um, because we are not very on time folks. And I think, um, <laughs> so when I plan events, I uh, tell the community one time and then I tell everyone else another time um, just because nice. I, I'm trying to hack the system. Yeah. But it, it calls it uh, causes me sometimes uh, conflict at home because everyone's like, yeah, but it's fine. No one's going to show up. No, but we need to be on time. Yeah. You don't understand. <laughs> oh. Yeah, but the problem is that leaves you in an empty venue just waiting for like half an hour while oh, yeah. literally no one's there. Literally. I've been to what? a cottages where it's just my family and like nobody's there. No. Kirpa, look, this is why. I'm like, but we got to listen to Asadiva. You can't be mad at me. <laughs> that happened to me for the first time because it was one of my first weddings without my parents or being out of town with a group of people. And I was yeah. on time. I, I took the 407 to be on time. And turns out I was 45 minutes early just sitting in the main hall by myself. Okay, lesson learned. Before we end off today, is there anything else you want to tell our listeners? I would say if you're scared to do something, that means it's the right thing to do. I think all great things in life we are sometimes scared of. And um, I think sometimes you just have to take chances. Awesome. I feel like that's a great way to end off. Thank you so much for sharing your story and being so open with us today. And I think we'll be ending the episode here. Thank you to everyone listening. You've been listening to the Experience Siki podcast. 